what I really needed to hear when protection started to be ripped away in 2022 was that it's not too late. And that just because we're three years or more into a pandemic does not mean that it's too late to start organizing or it's too late to join organizing around the pandemic. Personally, I feel like I can't really trust an organization that's not taking on such a huge issue that is affecting everyone, but particularly poor people, working class people, people of color, people with disabilities, elders, like people who are already oppressed in so many ways. Every chain of transmission that is broken is valuable. Every person that doesn't get sick, that doesn't lose that week of work or doesn't become disabled or die from the minorest of inconveniences to the greatest of losses, every single one of those things is valuable. Welcome to the DAP panel. Patrons, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So we're here with part two of our conversation with organizers. Again, just in case you haven't heard part one, we're talking this week and we talked last week with some organizers, um, what successes they might have had, what failures they've had, and especially what gives them resolve to keep pushing for COVID protections, even when some of their comrades are not on the same page. Mm -hmm. It's a great episode. In part two today, we have Becca, Rhea Small, and Kelly Hayes. So without further ado, let's get to the interviews. I'm Becca, she, her pronouns, and I do... Uh, some organizing and activism in Atlanta. Becca, can you talk briefly about what kind of organizing you've done in the past, what issues you've organized around, sort of where your political home centers? Sure. I've done a lot with a small, horizontally organized uh, group of journalists in Atlanta called the Atlanta Community Press Collective. You're coming from an abolitionist perspective as well. I am. I do. I do a lot around anti-police stuff, especially in 2020, obviously. And now, uh, now I do a lot of of disability advocacy as well, disability justice type stuff as well. Uh, since becoming disabled myself, I was doing a little bit before then, but it, you know, it kind of becomes much more at the forefront once you're disabled yourself. So. Mm-hmm. And I generally approach things personally from an anarchist perspective. So in terms of like some of the organizing that you've been doing over the years, obviously, as different campaigns get started, different like orgs you're involved with sort of come and go, 
our organizing lives always change, but everyone definitely had to sort of make some sudden abrupt changes as a result of COVID. In terms of how COVID shifted your own organizing, what kind of changed as a result of COVID and then what's changed throughout the duration of COVID? Yeah, well, in the beginning, I think there was a lot of consciousness around it and a very big willingness to uh, sort of do as much precautionary stuff as possible, even though we had way less information at the time. I remember we did everything that we possibly could outside and the vast, vast majority of people were, you know, masked and uh, tried to really limit indoor in-person gatherings and so forth. And um, as time has gone on, a lot of that has started to sort of fall away. There were a lot of like, there were a lot of Zoom teach-ins too. I remember that being a very Mm -hmm. big thing, like a lot of, a lot of like webinars and stuff, which, you know, I, I mean, you can debate the like efficacy of, of that, but like in terms of accessibility, it was really nice to not have to be somewhere in person to benefit from what was going on there for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it still obviously had quite an impact. The protests that happened in Atlanta, you know, I mean, protests are nice because they're pretty much always outside. <laughs> so, um, but even in, even in like preparing for them and, and getting stuff together, it was a lot of like meeting in parks and stuff, working with um, medic crews, like street medic crews. We would mostly do outdoor meetings when we could. Um, when we did the, there was like a big, like medic training thing. And uh, the part that had to be done indoors was in a big warehouse space where we had like all the open doors and stuff and everybody was masked. And then the stuff where you couldn't necessarily be masked, it was done outside. So like, I don't know, it seemed like that was at the forefront and it was also very like easy and natural. Like it didn't feel nobody, it didn't feel like it was a, a burden on anybody. It felt like, well, this is how we have to do it. So let's, let's, let's get it done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is actually like a very common response that I've gotten to this question of sort of like what was the like immediate reaction to COVID was that there was a lot that people have mentioned like, oh, it was common sense and Mm -hmm. it felt common sense. And it felt like that the consensus was like that precaution and an abundance of sort of precaution was not only a good thing, but like a advantageous strategy. But the, yeah. that that attitude gradually, people said, has dropped off, and that as it's dropped off, the kind of amount of work that's been required to try and negotiate even like a comparable level of protections or or accessibility options has gotten harder and harder. Is that something that you've also sort of experienced? Is like folks have said particularly in the last year they have felt it more than in prior years but also some people that i've talked to have said you know i was fooled by the biden administration for most of 2021 and you know i know that that's a time that you and i were both sort of in the same position that we are now with regard to covid and you and i are both two people who were sort of from this position and like making these critiques in a very lonely year to make them, which was 2021. Um, Definitely. So I'm curious to hear you talk about sort of like when you feel like you started to perceive that shift where the, the burden became greater on you in terms of having to negotiate, not just in your one-on-one relationships, but also in these more 
sort of broad sort of social relationships that we have through organizing where you're kind of dealing with a lot of people who are coming from a lot of different perspectives with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different opinions on COVID by probably like July, June of 2021. That for me was the moment that I feel like the floor really fell out. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of hard to say for me when the shift happened, because part of part of how it went for me is that I got very sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, like I, I have MECFS now, possibly from long COVID, but it's unclear. But anyway, I sort of, you know, I sort of dropped away from in-person organizing for a very long time and tried to do what I could online. Um, I did a lot of like scanner watching, like police scanner mm-hmm. watching. And that's when we started that like media organization and stuff. But, and then as I started to sort of try to come back in the fold, um, coming back into it, I realized like everything has changed and these places aren't like, we're not taking care of each other anymore. Uh, in, in that way, at least like, I would realize that a lot of the meetings and workshops and events and stuff. Like I remember a time when safety precautions were listed on flyers for events. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. Cause you could know, like, is this something that I can go to at all? You know? Um, and gradually I would notice, like, I would, uh, you know, I would see a flyer for an event. Um, we would have like, we had like, you know, concerts and fundraisers and like, bake sales and stuff on top of just like regular meetings and and organizing stuff. And I would see no mention of what, you know, what COVID precautions we're taking. Is this indoors or outdoors? Are there masks required? Are there masks even given out, et cetera? And I would see that those weren't listed anymore. And I would ask like, does that mean that the, that we're not doing any of that? Does, uh, or Mm. like, can we, can we put it on the flyer if so? And I would kind of get pushback from that. Like it was, it was like asking too much when to me, it's like a basic form of community care that is necessary to, you know, keep the movement running. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I, I don't know if I have long COVID or not, but my experience is 100% consistent with many, many people who do. So to me, like seeing the stark reduction in my activity levels, I'm like, well, why would we want, why would we want our, our, our activists to experience that like people are are being forced to to at least greatly scale back their their physical involvement and being put through a lot of, of suffering in the meantime as well and it seems strange to me that we would allow that to happen when we don't you know we don't have to mm-hmm. we do everything that we can to keep people from getting arrested or to keep you know like white nationalists out of the movement or whatnot because those pose a like a risk to health and safety and to morale and you know all kinds of other obvious things that it's just like a a no-brainer to want to take care of totally and and this is something that i've been thinking about so much because when we think of like other movement safety norms right like those are things that have been learned through hard lessons things that we do to avoid you know, surveillance from law enforcement, infiltration and movements, these kind of like self-protective measures that we take as leftists, particularly people who are organizing 
during times of like great attention to left politics and during times of no attention to left politics. Like there's a long history on the left of having to deal with really insurmountable odds, really complex problems that keep you apart, whether that's taking your time away, taking the space away to meet, making meeting unsafe. You know, these are problems that leftists like should recognize at face, right? Because we encounter them so often. So it's it's almost like it's surprise it's not surprising. Surprising is the wrong word. I can never quite figure out what the right word is, but I think it's disappointing <laughs> is the right word. You know, I'm yeah. disappointed that that folks are not seeing this here. Um because as you're saying, like when we think about like just basic safety procedures like to avoid kettling right like yeah. some of these safety procedures in terms of like infosec even oh yeah i've been to plenty of meetings where you know the the organizers of the meeting will say like no fucking phones leave your phones in your car or better yet leave them at home don't take notes even you know don't record this etc and those things are like minor inconveniences but they're accepted because we know what the potential consequences are and those are not 100% certain consequences they might even have a low chance like there's a fairly low chance that your personal phone is going to pose a problem at a given meeting but mm -hmm. you you it's just like well yeah sure you know I, <laughs> I don't know it's and that's a good security culture i think um yeah no one would ever say like it's harmful to go a little extra further than you need to on infosec right and to be sure, there there are arguments about that, but it feels it feels different, you know. And I think it's part of this like sort of greater societal denial about the situation that we're still in. So maybe let's talk about some of these conflict moments. What are the arguments beyond like this is too much? Like this is too much of a burden for us to take on that you've you've come across? Yeah, I've I've had one person say that it was like an infringement on bodily autonomy. Um, to ask people to mask at events. And I tried to say like, well, what about the bodily autonomy of people who don't want to get infected by a terrible pathogen? And they, their response was like, well, by being at the event, you're, you're kind of giving consent for that. And I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm not like, <laughs> I do not give consent for that. Like, and that's exactly the kind of attitude that keeps me away from certain, from like some of these events is like, I, I don't, I, th that type of consent shouldn't be expected, nor is it explicitly communicated. So to me, that's not consent. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like, well, if that's the attitude, then what you're saying is that like immunocompromised people or high risk people of any sort, or frankly, regular ass people that shouldn't be getting sick over and over again, uh, that could easily become disabled from this or worse shouldn't come. And like, I don't know that the, the bodily autonomy argument feels extremely weak to me when the imposition of a mask requirement versus the imposition of a debilitating disease seems like like there's such a stark difference between those two things. And I feel like they get, they get leveled out. Like you have one side saying like, please do not further disable me. And you have the other side saying like, please do not make me feel bad. 
<laughs> and I'm like, one of those things is way worse. There's a, there's a power imbalance here, you know? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. You brought up the consent example specifically. I was talking to Raina earlier today, like we were texting about this and she brought up how she had had a lot of success using the consent framing and the fact that, you know, when we're in public space without masking, we're exposing people to the kind of pathogens that we've interacted with in other spaces um, as an argument um, to talk to folks who were like partying a lot and then going unmasked on the subway that, mm-hmm. you know, Raina was like interacting with in everyday life. And, and she said, like, I had a lot of success saying to them, like, OK, like, listen, you're going to this party like you guys are refusing to do masks at the party. So everyone who's at this party is like consenting to exposure. But then if you go on the subway unmasked, you're exposing everyone on the subway without their consent and they can't avoid being there. And I think what is so interesting about what you just said right now is it, it, I think raises the question of like, obviously like organizing spaces are social spaces and organizing relationships are social relationships and this is sociality but there are different levels of like consent and power in all of our relationships and all of the spaces that we inhabit and move through right and so i think what often is going on is like these kind of arguments used to discuss private spaces and private gatherings are being applied to movement spaces and saying that this should categorically sort of apply and i think what's frustrating is that a lot of us actually get into organizing and approach organizing and and initially even feel comfortable being in organizing spaces because they're explicitly not like a private space. Yeah, sometimes Mm -hmm. they're invite only, but the idea is also that like, you know, folks are kind of coming together for a reason, right? And that reason has urgency and political salience. And to say that that is an event where it shouldn't be like a bus, right? Or it shouldn't be the kind of thing where like, people cannot go unless they are comfortable being exposed to a virus is to really kind of make a statement about who movement spaces are for. That is fundamentally not something I think as like leftists, we want to reproduce, endorse or uphold. And and I don't think people totally see what's going on there when these kind of arguments about privacy and autonomy and, you know, wanting to make sure that, spaces are friendly or whatever are used. It's like keeping this like able-bodied norm in mind, you know, at all times. And I, and I think the thing too is like, if we're thinking about this from a economic justice perspective, like repeated exposures to COVID mean being out of work a lot. And so when we also make movement spaces, not like buses, but like nightclubs or dinner parties, it's also not just like kicking the disabled people out who are also poor people. Often the majority of us are disabled and poor. The United States mm-hmm. makes sure of that. But it's also this economic justice angle of really not putting your money where your mouth is in terms of being like, I'm orienting myself from a pure perspective of class analysis. And yet, like, I'm completely ignorant of like the kind of power that I hold to take away someone's economic power through the spreading of illness from one person to another in a space, you know, that is, a, that is a really good point actually. Yeah. Yeah. That is an extremely good point. Like even a so-called like healthy person losing a week of work, most people can't really afford that. Like 
And you're definitely creating a space that is more likely to be white and higher income and able-bodied. And that goes against the ethos of what we're usually trying to do on, on the left, you know, like margins to the middle is a slogan for a reason. <laughs> like it's not, it's not even just a slogan, it's an ethos. And like, you, you could technically make the argument that movement spaces are voluntary in the sense that like, I won't lose my house if I don't go to this given protest. Like I might, if I didn't go to my job or what have you, but like, on the other hand, like personally, I do this type of stuff because I do think it's necessary. I think that if enough of us aren't doing this kind of work, we're not going to see the future that we want to see. And the present that we're inhabiting is just going to keep getting worse. So I do see it being, I don't see it necessarily as a voluntary space where you can just say, well, if you don't want to accept this risk, then don't show up. Like, I think I need to show up. I, I kind of see it as my as my duty to show up, you know, and there's there's like another argument that people made is that like, well, in doing this kind of work, you have to accept a certain amount of risk. And well, sure. But why not reduce the risk as much as we possibly can? Like, why not? Why not try to reduce own goals? You know, like go tell that to coal miners, go tell that to asbestos workers, go tell that right. to literally Anyone who benefits from any type of workplace protection. I mean, if you really want to take a left approach to the pandemic, then nightclubs and restaurants are also workplaces and therefore not exactly. really spaces of consent fucking either. And the did the home yeah, dinner party, as long as exactly. it's something where you're cooking for the people who are coming to your home and those people are not like in a cab, right? Like that's also not necessarily a space for consent. Like we live in capitalism. Consent is like, really conditional exactly and due to the and due to the nature of this epidemiologically there is there's a sort of like cascading effect right mm -hmm. so my roommate for instance works at a coffee shop they they have to keep working at this coffee shop jobs are not easy to come by they do not have a college education it would be a perfectly good job to have in other circumstances but Customers come in unmasked, their coworkers come in unmasked. And even though they wear an N95, you can only ask it to do so much. That much exposure over time has led to multiple times them getting infected. And then that completely changes our household dynamic. All of a sudden, I have to change my behavior as well to avoid getting infected. And they lose a bunch of money. Everything gets harder. You know, like they were about to take their cat to the vet the last time they got infected and they had to put that off. Like it, it has all these downstream effects. And considering that like leftism is sort of supposed to be the side of collectivity and of like recognizing that we are all connected and that we all affect each other. Um, it's weird that we're short-sighted in this one instance where it's like, well, even if I decided that it was okay for me to come you know, get infected. Like, yeah, none of the other people, like you said, none of the other people that I interact with even know that, like they don't even have the opportunity to know all of the interactions that I've had or all the places that I've been or the things that I've decided to do sort of on their behalf. Mm -hmm. So like you have this downstream effect, like three or four people down the line that, that the person sort of making this decision about like, well, I accept the risk. 
Well, the people three or four <laughs> links down the chain have no possible way of of doing that. For someone who's like still not convinced, like if you could just sort of talk to the platonic ideal blank slate, COVID denialist leftist, who's like, listen, it's not that I don't care about disabled people. It's not that I don't care about workers. You know, it's just that like, this is over. It already happened. There's nothing else we can do. There's no more we can do. There's no power that we have in this relationship because COVID is like too big for us. <laughs> well, in my head, I'm saying, okay, Doomer. Like, I don't fuck know. You. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I would say that that is exactly the message that power is communicating to us. And that is the message that is given to us on so many issues aside from COVID that we, that we work against. There's so many things that are said to be inevitable or said to be like, well, whether you agree or not, it's here to stay. I, you know, I saw somebody saying that about like, you know, chat GPT the other day, whether you like it or not, it's here to say, so let's just figure out how to use it best. And like, that is the language of inevitability. Why are we even fighting then? Like at that stage, why are we engaging in activism at all? I mean, we might as well just sit back and, and do our little jobs and watch TV. But the, the, the truth is when we do that, the world around us keeps getting worse. It just keeps getting worse. We, we try like, I, I mean, I spent my early twenties as a complete hedonist, like <laughs> basically nihilist, you know, I, I, and I did care about people. Um, but I was more interested in having fun and doing cool shit and like, yeah, <laughs> you know, that was, that was fun and cool. But as I was doing that, the world kept getting worse and eventually it will reach you like mm -hmm. in one way or another, it will reach you. And like a line that's been going through my head lately is it's easy to be easygoing when the going's easy. And I don't know. I, I think there's like, there's often this attitude or maybe not even attitude so much as like human psychological tendency that like I, I am the sort of like, I am the protagonist of my story. And like, I see these things happening to other people and I do care. I don't like when bad things are happening to other people, but that won't happen to me because that's not the story that I'm in. And, but my, my point is like, nothing is inevitable. And, and that's the whole reason that we, are trying to take on the behemoth of American empire in the first place, which would absolutely claim its own inevitability and invincibility and infiniteness. Um, you know, it's, it's like almost cheesy to quote the Ursula Le Guin line that like capitalism, no, I'm going to misquote it now, but like capitalism seems inevitable. Uh, so too did, the divine right of Kings. Um, these things can change and we have a responsibility to do what we can to change them with what we have available, where we are. Um, so I think sure we can point to like the Biden administration is ultimately responsible for this. Uh, the CDC is ultimately responsible for this. We could point out even individual actors in that, but they're not going to just, they're not going to do this on their own. And they're not going to respond to us like tweeting at them either. Um, and the only way that we can even form a 
a sort of collective resistance is to start where we're at. So every chain of transmission that is broken is valuable. Like every person that doesn't get sick, that doesn't lose that week of work or doesn't become disabled or die from the minorest of inconveniences to the greatest of losses. Every single one of those things is valuable. One of the people um, I, I've, I've, before I got like super sick, I did a lot of like climate stuff, both climate activism and also trying to do like permaculture type stuff. And like one of my greatest mentors in that area would say stuff like every beetle saved is valuable. Like if you create a small haven for wildlife in your own backyard, that has value even if that in itself is not enough to like topple the whole problem, topple the whole regime, because you're, you're creating these like little islands of safety. And the more of those islands of safety there are, like the more that they interconnect and form a web of resilience. Um, and so like, I kind of see that as our project right now is like, we have to kind of build that from the bottom up. And that starts with making our own movements in, in whatever, whatever topic that we're working on. It starts there. So like in that sort of sense, what are some things that give you hope? What Some of the things that give me hope are like thinking back to the stories you would tell us about chestnuts and what <laughs> I learned about the world around me from you and just from our conversations that we had about how wonderful it was to share space with each other. You know, what are some of the things that like keep you going even in those moments where you get disconnected yeah, that's um, that's a harder one to answer with a really good quippy, like, <laughs> but really, like, I don't know what gives I think what gives me hope is is each other, really, like in so many ways, the world has gotten objectively worse and we are going hard on a very bad trajectory. But at the same time, we are watching consciousness change. We very much are. I mean, I've. I've come a long fucking way for one thing, but even like even the awareness about some of these things around in like normie culture or whatever, like my mom takes it for granted that like the police reports after a fucking, you know, police shooting are probably bullshit. Mm. We still have like so far to go in terms of creating like an overwhelming groundswell, but we're up against the fucking behemoth that is spending all of its fucking money to try to change these perceptions and we're still making an impact the fact that on any like mainstream news article you will see the comments on twitter absolutely full of people challenging those narratives i think there is a lot of hope to be found in that and in whatever little pockets of growth we can make the sort of like seeing the people that are hit the hardest like find each other have conversations around their sort of co-experience and and trying to like build something out of that i think is largely where the hope comes from i mean there's only one place to to find it and giving up now doesn't seem like an option yeah Thank you.
just to sort of start us on the record, do you mind doing uh, like my name is, my pronouns mm-hmm. are, and I'm an organizer with Building yeah. Bank? Yeah, my name is Rhea Small. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm an organizer at Senior and Disability Action in San Francisco. Now, do you mind talking briefly about sort of what kind of organizing you do, what kind of issues you organize around, maybe campaigns you've worked on in the past year, just to give a kind of general context for the work that you're doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm a full-time organizer at Senior and Disability Action, which is a fairly small community organization made up um, with a membership model. Our members are mostly seniors or people of all ages with disabilities. Uh, Some are allies who care about the issues. And we work on a pretty wide range of issues, mostly related to housing, healthcare, transit, and sometimes other stuff as it comes up. Um, Yeah, I guess in the past, I've worked on some of our organizing around mental health, particularly we were fighting a conservatorship expansion mm-hmm. in California that you might know about. It was piloted in three cities. San Francisco was one of them. And yeah, unfortunately, we lost that fight, but we did organize like a huge coalition against it. And um, yeah, very strong public opposition to it. But it went through anyway. It was good work. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's hard work, though, especially in California, which is so favorable towards conservatorship in general. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess my first question is, you know, you've been involved also, as we were talking about before the interview, um, over email in a campaign to push back against the rolling back of mask mandates, specifically in Oakland. Um, In terms of also sort of taking on, on top of the organizing agenda that y'all were working with before the pandemic, obviously you've also taken on issues that are relative to the community that you're already organizing in that have to do with the pandemic as well. And this is something that's pretty common is I've mostly been speaking to organizers who were doing work that's not pandemic specific, but that Mm -hmm. must consider the pandemic in some way or is having to grapple with issues raised by the pandemic or the abandonment as a result of the response. Um, So do you mind talking, you know, a little bit about, for example, how the campaign that, that you've been working on since, uh, I think you said spring of 22, mm-hmm. sort of what that process was like and has been like of doing that organizing work and, you know, how that's gone and maybe any issues or conflicts that you've run into, whether it's internally um, with the community or, you know, just logistically even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess we we started Um, organizing to bring back mask mandates. I guess it was probably in March of last year. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And here, you know, it's something that's like really different state by state, as you know, like in California, we mostly had an indoor mask mandate until February of last year. Like there were a couple months that it was lifted, but then it came back. Um, So it really felt like a pretty stark change to me personally. It did like to be like, Oh, suddenly when I, go to the grocery store, there's people not wearing masks, whereas before it was pretty like close to 100%. Yeah, um, it was jarring. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, you know, kind of a big shift. And then also the transit stuff that happened. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, with the federal TSA mandate being repealed. And then like, what does that mean for our local transit? So yeah, we mostly 
our first kind of big push was to get our local, biggest local public transit agency, BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit, to bring back the mask requirement. And that was successful, which was really exciting. We did kind of a lot of lobbying with BART board members and calling into the public meetings and meeting with some of them privately. And um, yeah, there was really a lot of support to continue requiring masks on BART, mostly because, you know, it had been in place since the beginning of the pandemic. And it had not, you know, it hadn't created any problems. Everyone was used to wearing a mask on transit and it was, you know, making it safer. And yeah, it wasn't like <laughs> it didn't, no one had, I, I didn't have the feeling that there were people who were just like waiting for this to be taken away. <laughs> you know, it was like, yeah. Um, so there was a lot of like community support for continuing masking on BART and a lot of, you know, people who are like, oh yeah, I have like a baby. I don't want, you know, like my baby can't wear a mask. I don't want feel like it's not safe on BART or, you know, like people Mm -hmm. who are, you know, high risk for various reasons, people who had young kids, essential workers, just so many people supported bringing back the mask requirement. So that was, it was great. They brought it back for three months. And then kind of what was stated was that they were like, oh, in this time, you know, we'll work with the public health departments and stuff to, you know, (laughs) set a, (laughs) set a new guideline. And then of course the public health departments were completely unreceptive and didn't do anything. And then we pushed again at the end of the three months and got another three months extension. And then after that, we we tried again. And that time it it did not pass, um, which, yeah, it was really disappointing and just kind of shows how much ideological shift happened in that six months. Um, mm-hmm. The same people who at first were like, oh, this Trump judge struck this down. Like, we don't want to follow that. We're the Bay Area. We want, you know, like we want to follow this science, et cetera. Like just six months later, we're like, oh, it's not our job to enforce public health policies. Like we're a transit agency. We can't be in charge of this. Yeah. And then also a lot of kind of misinformation about the mask requirement leading to conflict and violence against workers, BART workers, which we did like a public records request and found all the incidents that were cited. And most of them were not incidents of of anyone getting hurt. It was just like someone was being belligerent or not wearing a mask and was asked to wear one. So there was a lot of kind of lack of clarity about what was actually happening there. That's really interesting because I think that's one of the that's one of the arguments you you hear often is either, oh well, you know, because the 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 larger mask mandate isn't in place, this puts workers in a vulnerable situation. And so we need the mask mandate. But then often in the same breath, people will make the argument of exactly the opposite of, oh, well, the mass mandate puts workers in this position where they're forced to have these engagements. And, you know, it's frustrating because I think, well, that frame might sound right at face, right? The the fact and the, the facts of COVID and the way that it spreads through the air kind of actually changes the calculus a little bit because we, you know, whether a worker is going to interact with someone or not, they're still going to be exposed to that person's virus if there's mm-hmm you know, no mask mandate and all the other virus that might be in the air. Right. And, yeah. and, and I, I think that's, that's also really interesting what you were saying about also how the community perception really shifted and shifted following the tone of how some of the larger sort of federal national and international discourse was happening, regardless of the identity of Oakland, of Northern California, of San Francisco as being a kind of progressive liberal, you know, 
committed to things like disability rights. This is the birthplace of the disability rights movement in the United States, really, you know, and to think of like, oh, well, you could see over the course of a year, the shift of people conceptualizing vulnerable people as being on the same standing, on the same page as them, of being in the same boat to seeing vulnerable people as others over the Mm -hmm. course of the year sort of play out like that and how much more difficult that actually made the organizing that you were doing (laughs) for the community of vulnerable people, right? And so it shows, I think, as a really good example also of, you know, why we kind of can't just take one strategy here because nothing is ever happening in a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. Like we we have to be always considering the context of the organizing that we're doing and sort of what political pressures we're working under. And it seems like a theme that I've been seeing is that it's gotten harder, more demoralizing, and more difficult to win the kinds of demands that folks are making in particular over the last 12 months. Is that something mm-hmm. that you feel like has really been noticeable for you as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, part of it. I think it's definitely like sort of the ideological trickle down from the top, <laughs> you know? Um, the only true trickle down, Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is really unfortunate. Like, yeah, normalization of death <laughs> does trickle down, unfortunately. Um, and... Yeah, I think also, yeah, people just getting used to to being in public indoor spaces where wearing a mask is a choice and a lot of people aren't. I think at first that felt very shocking and it felt like, no, this is a collective thing. This is a policy level decision. And then, yeah, now it's become just very normal for it to be like, oh, yeah, it's up to individual choice. And like, who are we to tell people that they have to wear a mask? Like a lot of that has unfortunately filtered down and also um you know more and more people feeling like they're not vulnerable to covid even though we all are which i know you know you guys have talked about a lot on death panels just like the way all of this stuff is written like oh well if you're high risk it's written as if that's applying to like a tiny margin of the population when actually it's like most of the u.s population mm-hmm. just yeah there's this sort of um rhetorical use of high risk or vulnerable, which is used to make people believe it doesn't apply to them kind of no matter what. So yeah, I think that has made it harder. I think just in general, I think our, you know, elected officials have really taken a turn on COVID over the last year from it being kind of a liberal versus conservative issue. And, you know, with mostly everyone here who's in office as a Democrat, up until last summer, it felt like there was pretty widespread support for continuing precautions. And that has really changed over the last year to now, you know, the mainstream democratic line is very much, oh, either COVID is over or it's not over, but it's not a crisis anymore. And we don't need to use the same tools. And, you know, it can be managed, you know, with Paxlovid and it can be managed all these ways. So that has been a big shift and has made it really a lot more difficult. Um, And also just, you know, as we said, kind of from the beginning, like, the more you get rid of mask requirements and then try to bring them back, like the more back and forth there is, like mm-hmm. the, the harder it is to get pr- protections brought back. And I know that was definitely part of a deliberate strategy from the health department to not be consistent about it. But of course, they didn't say that. They said like, oh, we're getting rid of mask requirements now so we could bring them back when when them. it's really scary. Exactly. <laughs> or when there's a new variant or when there's 
cases are higher. Like there's been more new variants than we can count, but they haven't brought them back the whole time. Yeah. I mean, we're barely into February and we almost have 20,000 deaths in Mm -hmm. the, the new year. And also we know that reporting is happening like at a fraction of the speed as it used to and that there are so many delays up to six weeks in death certificates. It's very worrying. Um, which is partially why I really am excited to have these conversations right now, because I feel like as hard as 2022 has been, 2023 is already looking a little harder. And it's going mm-hmm. to be, I think, one of the harder years that we've experienced actually so far in COVID, which is saying a lot because getting harder than 2020 is impressive. Um, and getting harder than last year is impressive yeah. as well. I mean, the the Omicron wave in the United States really was a shift in terms of what we were willing to accept uh, in terms of density of sickness at one time. And that has completely shifted labor conditions for folks across the board. My my question that I was going to ask next, you kind of already answered, but I guess just I'll ask it again in case you have more to say, which is that, you know, what do you think contributed to some of the successes you had in those first two pushbacks that mm. were not there in that third instance? You know, mm-hmm. are there any lessons that you kind of pull from comparing and contrasting? Like, obviously, the first time there was a kind of novelty the, to the removal of the mask mandate, and that that seems to have been a clear advantage. But mm-hmm. by the time you were pushing back on the second mask mandate removal and you got that three-month extension, I feel like that was a peak period of of normalization in the U.S. And we were really seeing heavy, heavy resistance to the idea of of people who are not high-risk masking at all. You know, one-way masking works was like the thing to say at that moment. And mandates were attempted in a couple places, like Philadelphia, in effect for maybe three days, pulled back, Mm -hmm. like a huge media thing you know we've seen we've seen a couple instances where this has been successful but the case that you know you've had actually of like pushing back twice successfully is relatively unheard of actually in the United States and so really specifically you know if there are any lessons that you feel like came from that that might be helpful to other organizers I'd be really curious to hear about that Yeah, that's a really good question. And I appreciate that framing of it. I think some of it was, yeah, definitely the first pushback against the BART mandate lifting. There was a lot of, yeah, the novelty. It was very newsworthy. A lot of people were, you know, just like kind of shocked or upset by it. There was just very widespread, you know, public support for continuing to require masks. And I think, I think ultimately kind of what I don't know. I think we had some luck, honestly, the first couple of times <laughs> with the people on the board, like even though it was the same people, mm-hmm. I think that they were just like more willing to kind of go against the grain before there had been such deep normalization and so much kind of political push to think of COVID protections as like a toxic issue or as something you don't want to be involved in. And I think mm. for people working in government that that did change over the summer from it being something that was a little more acceptable to it feeling like it was going to harm their career more. Um, and mm-hmm. I also think, you know, we were working with, yeah, the BART board, which is an elected board. And I think that's part of why we had a, a bit more success there than with some of the appointed boards, like with the SFMTA, which runs the public transit system within San Francisco. We also tried the same strategies and, 
you know, we even had like a protest outside of their office and we did not have any success with them. And I think a lot of it was because they are all appointed and working at the mayor's permission. And, Mm. you know, the mayors are very much anti-mask requirements and like back to back to work, back to business. Let's fill our downtowns again. (laughs) So I think that, (laughs) yeah, I think working with an elected board gave us a little more leeway, Mm. especially when they could see that, oh, this is what like 90, 95% of our constituents calling in are asking for. Um, So, yeah. And and I think the reason why we didn't win the last time is really just because we kind of had the same size group and applied the same amount of pressure and just conditions had changed. Bar was higher. It was. And like it, you know, at this point, it takes a lot more um, mm-hmm. to get the same the same things we had before or the same things, you know, like the protections we had in 2020 and 21 or the ones that we fought to bring back last year. I think it's just going to take a lot more disruptive organizing and a lot more people to get that brought back. And that's just kind of an assessment of what needs to happen in order to to bring back some of these protections. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's Frustrating, actually, how there's such a consistent pattern across all of the interviews that I've done so far, where regardless of whether folks have had success, they've had less success as they've had to either ask for more or ask for the same things longer Mm -hmm. and with the same size group. That's been, you know, really consistent as the bar got higher and higher, what organizations were sort of being asked to do in terms of what gaps, you mm-hmm. know, folks are covering or expected to cover in order to make things safe got bigger and bigger. And so it's almost been an effective way of also, I think, almost like starving uh, out some of the energy that's also mm-hmm. within some of these organizi- or organizational formations where you have folks um, burning out as a result of also these higher bars and the fact that sort of as more things have progressed, it's almost like layering more on people's plates and it's not mm-hmm. like anyone had like a light organizing agenda pre COVID. Yeah. Um, and some people, you know, were not organizing before COVID mm-hmm. and have only started. And, and even so as the last year, year and a half has progressed, their COVID organizing load has gotten bigger and bigger mm-hmm. and bigger. And the constituencies that are sort of seeking their help or support have gotten more numerous and Mm -hmm. more people are looking to connect, but also more people are engaged in similar fights with similar loads. And it's almost as if sometimes some of the, the, some of what's on the docket almost seems to be not only demobilizing and discouraging, but also preventing us from, having any spare time to share with each other, you're the only person mm-hmm. that I've spoken to who does this full time. Mm-hmm. Everyone that I've spoken to so far is also doing this around their job, around their job in school. And so when we start thinking about temporal resources in terms of organizers' time and their mental energy, you know, as, as pandemic uh, workplace protections have shifted, as they've had to maybe advocate you know, in multiple arenas as a result of these things shifting, it's really clearly sucking um, some momentum out of some of the stuff that folks were already working on. And it's not that they're like less committed to it. It's just Mm -hmm. that everything has gotten more labor intensive, more difficult. The bar is higher. 
Um, and it's harder to get people in the same space. So it feels like there's a lot that we're kind of up against right now. Um, but even so, I know you and I are in agreement on this. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but would you talk about why you personally feel that despite taking on and considering COVID adding so much more to our plates in terms of how we're thinking through political organizing, thinking through things like mutual aid, thinking through just the basic minimum of stuff that used to kind of be a given before, you know, getting people in a room. Um, why do you feel that COVID is still a really important issue that we need to be adapting our organizing norms to and adapting our demands to as well? Mm. I think just like very basically, it's having such a huge, you know, and catastrophic effect on our lives. Like those of us who are living through this time, it just feels like to not respond to it feels, um, it feels both like psychologically and politically just not right. Kind of like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I feel like personally, I feel like I can't really trust an organization that's not taking on such a huge issue that is affecting everyone, but particularly poor people, working class people, people of color, people with disabilities, elders, like people who are already oppressed in so many ways and were before 2020 and now, you know, are facing much lower life expectancy and harder lives while we are alive. It just feels like to not respond to that feels, yeah, it just feels really out of touch. And I think mm -hmm. that even organizations that are not really that are like, oh, we don't have time to deal with COVID or they don't see it as a political issue, which I find really frustrating. Like it's seen as sort of a, you know, an unfortunate kind of like side tragedy <laughs> sort of like, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that makes our work a little harder. But I think it is harming them as well to not respond because it's like, um, I don't know, I've heard from friends who are involved in other types of organizing and in unions and stuff. They're just like, oh, we can't get people to our meetings. We can't, you know, like stuff isn't going so well. And it's, I think like when you don't take into account the actual like material reality that people are working through, it, it just, you know, the organizations fall apart. I mean, one of the reasons I was really interested in speaking to you is because you're also organizing primarily non-working people, which is rare. A lot of organizing comes from the model of building solidarity through economic justice, through mm -hmm. employee employment relations and understanding, you know, the ways that laws, policies, and norms affect your material survival. And I, I've heard a lot of folks say we've had so much success talking about COVID as an economic justice issue, talking mm -hmm. about COVID as an issue of, well, you can't afford to miss work. You can't afford to be sick. Mm -hmm. You can't afford to actually um, take the time off you need or, you know, deal with these things. So like the kind of Cost-benefit analysis is that uh, masks work out to be cheaper. Hybrid meetings work out to be cheaper in the long run. And that that's been a huge salient conversation that people have had with, with in their own organizing. And obviously that economic justice angle does apply specifically to non-working populations. But the kind of built-in employee-employer analysis is missing from mm -hmm. that. And you... you uh, like myself or someone who was thinking about disability and working on, you know, things like 
social citizenship and access to public space before the pandemic. I know a lot of folks who became aware of sort of disability justice recently have been really dismayed to find that this is not broadly a uh, left issue. Mm-hmm. Personally, as someone who was working on it before, I'm not happy where we're at now, but uh, I've been working on this specifically trying to talk the left into paying attention to these issues mm-hmm. <laughs> and recognizing them as, you know, part of our left constituency, not just in the United States, but as a kind of a lens for also looking not just at including more people, but how do we understand our own relationship to work by thinking of those who are either kept out of work or who do not work. Um, I feel like we have seen some tremendous shifts in terms of awareness that this is even a thing in mm-hmm. the last five years even, that these issues exist, I think, in a way that didn't exist a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling you know, three years into the pandemic, doing the work that you've been doing, what are the things that we need to be trying to emphasize in terms of like expanding the left understanding of disability in our kind of immediate near future? Yeah. Wow. That's such a, such a big question. Um, (laughs) It's okay if you don't have an answer too. Uh, um, I guess I think something that like I've been thinking about a lot, you know, during COVID and that I feel like, you know, Death Panel has done a tremendous job of like getting out there is just, you know, the idea that disability and like debilitation and capitalism are all intertwined. And, you know, none of us like gets out alive, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And I think when people kind of see that in their own lives or their own families or, you know, friends, comrades, like it feels a lot more real just um you know and also just like you know the older you get like I mean I'm in my mid-30s now but like a lot of people have now had an experience of like oh I wasn't able to work for a few years or a year or you know I take care of my mom or you know like I've you know had a mental health condition that kept me from my previous life in some ways or realizing that it's not it's not like this you know like neatly delineated fringe group of like disabled people who are all, you know, come into the world with their disability and with identity as a disabled person. And like, yeah, I think membership also, card stamped. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, it's like this small kind of side group, like just the idea that, you know, like we all kind of, I mean, some people are disabled their whole lives and then some people are disabled for part of their lives. And like that is happening in, in tandem with, racial capitalism and how that is, mm-hmm. you know, making our whole, you know, especially with climate change and stuff, just to make making our whole environment unlivable for our species and like how that, how that affects us all. It just feels like really seeing it as, you know, a core issue and not a fringe issue. I feel like that's really important. My last question is we often face these moments, right? Where we're going to have setbacks. We're going to have hard years. We're going to have moments where, we are facing insurmountable odds to get the demands that we want. But as you know, that can never be a reason to not move forward with the work. Um, When you're sort of dealing with those moments, or maybe not even when you're dealing with those moments, just sort of in general, what are the things that give you hope? What are the things that kind of keep you going? What 
do you use to sort of center and ground yourself to remind yourself sort of why you're doing what you're doing to keep moving when we hit these points, like particularly the last year where things get hard and dark and the kind of solidarity that we thought we were building towards might seem a little more tenuous than it did the year before or months before. I, you know, I draw a lot of hope and just knowledge from history. And I don't know, I was recently reading this book called We Want Everything by Nanny Balestrini. Have you heard of it? I have, um, but I haven't read it yet, to be honest. Did you oh, like yeah. it? Yeah, oh, I liked it. It was really great. Um, yeah. And so it's about um, Italian workers and auto factories in the 70s in the north of Italy and how they just kind of like went on like waves of wildcat strikes and were just like, this is bullshit. But just, you know, reading something like that and just seeing how under certain conditions, sometimes there's just like the right moment for a big explosion of of activity. And, you know, a lot can be won very quickly. And then other times it's kind of like slow plotting and feeling like nothing's being won for, you know, months or years. My name is Kelly Hayes. My pronouns are she, they. I am an organizer with the Lifted Voices Collective and the host of Truthout's Movement Memos podcast. I'm also the co-author of the forthcoming book, Let This Radicalize You with Miriam Kappa. First of all, the book is fantastic. (laughs) I've really enjoyed reading it. It made me really want to talk to you or Miriam specifically um, because of what this book is supposed to be as a tool. So just to sort of set up, do you mind briefly sort of talking about just what kind of organizing you do, like how long you've been doing it, what issues you organize around, et cetera, where you locate your your political home and work? I am a prison and police abolitionist, so I have done a lot of organizing around issues related to state violence. After engaging in various forms of activism throughout my life, I met Miriam Kappa a little over a decade ago. And that relationship really shaped my path in terms of honing in on police and prisons and having a real liberatory vision for the first time, as opposed to just being in attack mode because I was angry about injustice. Miriam taught me the importance of building relationships and also the importance of learning together. Uh, My collective has a strong focus on political education which I really credit to my time with We Charge Genocide, where political education was at the center of my work. Prior to the pandemic, my collective was doing a lot of direct action trainings, that there was a surge in interest in that kind of political education after Trump was elected, and we trained people relentlessly, and we coordinated a lot of protests over the years. But after the pandemic began, We shifted our focus to mutual aid, and that's where the focus has largely remained during this time. Mm -hmm. Um, In the last year, we have done a lot of work to connect grassroots organizers and our networks with survival stipends and other resources because people are really struggling. Um, Last summer, we heard that a lot of our comrades, particularly our formerly incarcerated comrades, were struggling to survive inflation. So we did a round of survival stipends for activists who are criminalized survivors. 
Since then, we have helped some young Black and Native activists stay in college who couldn't pay their tuition, help people cover their rent, medication costs, assistive devices, paid for abortions, covered costs so people could continue unpaid work helping unhoused people and folks who use substances in their communities, and covered therapy for some folks who were getting out of abusive situations and allowed a Native birth worker to continue to pay her bills and take on more unpaid work. And I'm taking the time to enumerate all of those things because while they are not macro-level organizing wins, which we, of course, need in a big way, they are all little victories that are going to make larger wins possible. And I've been hearing from a lot of people in recent months that they feel stuck or that everything feels stuck and that they don't know what to do. And I sympathize with those feelings a lot. Um, I'm also a big believer in seasonality. And I think we have to take care of our people in winter in both the literal and metaphorical Mm. sense. So that's where a lot of my energy has gone these days. What advice, you know, what would be your advice for people grappling with getting the people that they organize with to take COVID seriously? So the lack of consensus around COVID safety and the lack of regard for the well-being of disabled people, as well as the worrisome impacts of continuous COVID infection, has been extremely harmful to our movements. And I think a lot of the problems we are seeing mirror what's happening in the rest of society. You have people who are determined to act like everything's normal when it's not, and people who are asking for some safety measures. And often those people are treated like they're asking for a return to lockdowns and saying no one can gather. We have people saying that it's alienating to require masks and that it's depressing to focus on COVID and that it's hard enough to get people invested in social justice and that you just have to meet them where they're at and where people are is unmasked. And, you know, look, I'm a realist. I do not expect universal masking from all people in all public situations everywhere at all times. But in our workspaces, in the community we build together, and in the culture of protest, we cannot say it's just too alienating, hard or depressing to avoid killing people or causing each other serious harm. The world has changed. And that's a very hard, that's very hard for people to, to accept. As a reflex, most people will justify the systems they depend on, justify the status quo, and attempt to replicate the social relations they are familiar with, even if those things are unjust, rotten, or deteriorating. Um, As activists and organizers, we are supposed to have the capacity to recognize change and the need for change. Part of our work is helping other people understand those changes or the need for those changes. It's not our job to make people feel comfortable partaking in normalcy. That's never been an activist's or an organizer's job. COVID normalcy is the blueprint for obliterating whatever regard we have left for other people in this individualist, death-making society. The lives most of us live always came at someone else's expense, and we know that about capitalism, but everything is getting a lot starker. Um, In terms of what to do about it, I think we have to recognize that we are in a moment when reciprocal care and giving a fuck about what happens to disabled people, (laughs) to marginalized people, to migrants and prison people and others is becoming increasingly countercultural. So for one thing, I think we need to focus on building that counterculture. What does it look like? I think we need to look at how we can make gatherings safer, 
and what practices we can build out amongst those of us who are looking to engage in a good way. And that means thinking about ventilation, thinking about masking, thinking about how to make outdoor gatherings feasible in less ideal weather. It means everything but giving up and going into isolation or giving up and adopting the new normal because the process of accepting that this group is now expendable or that group is now expendable is how they will destroy us all if we allow it. And I think a lot of people who know enough to realize that simply aren't letting themselves understand it because it's hard. The world has changed and it's going to keep changing, building a counterculture of people who are not in denial about that who are adaptive and responsive and determined to keep each other alive. That's what building any viable resistance movement in these times is going to look like. I would also encourage people to look to disabled organizers who are sharing resources about how we can get through this stage of things. I know uh, Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasena, uh, who will actually be a guest on Movement Memos in a couple of weeks, has a new resource coming out for disabled folks about gathering safely, including during colder months. When you face those moments where, you know, there's a lot of despair, threatening to overwhelm and and stifle hope, what keeps you going? What helps you push through? My relationships give me hope. Um, I am constantly heartened by my partner, by my friends, by the fact that some of us are alive and uncaged in a world that made that extremely unlikely. Mm. I always say on my show that our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. And I believe that with my whole heart. When I think about all the good my community has done from year to year as we struggle and care for people and care for each other, I know my purpose. And I find that if you can hang on to your sense of purpose amid the storm, take action and do some good, you can make your own hope. Not always, but often. I also think about something Dean Spade said on my show words that I actually keep framed beside my desk. He said, I don't know where this is going. None of us know where this is going. It's not looking good. But what do I want to spend the rest of my life doing? Being fully alive, being with other people, being in it together, taking risks, being really, really caring, and learning to love people, even if they annoy me. (laughs) Learning deeper love. I love those words a lot and I hold on to them. And I think knowing that we have that capacity that Dean's talking about, Mm -hmm. that's my light in the tunnel. So that wraps our special two-part episode. Thank you to Alex, Raina, Becca, Rhea, and Kelly for lending their time and expertise. Really appreciated getting the chance to talk to everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this series. Patrons will catch you Monday in the bonus feed. For everyone else, we'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. If you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. 
And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. What you're doing I won't know you Pretty soon Got to try To improve your brain To see it And your mind are getting